things will pop up like gaming, new types of gaming, and there's things you hear about the metaverse, right? So there'll be, you know, there could be applications and that are being set off in this metaverse, right? There's different things that could encompass Web3, but the, the tech at its core is blockchain derived, which is where we potentially come in to help serve that world. In the world of business finance, things change fast. Welcome to the Leaders of Modern Finance, a show where today's finance innovators discuss what the future holds. Learn from experts in the field as they explore emerging finance trends, insights, and more. This episode is brought to you by Stamply, the leading accounts payable automation platform. With Stamply, collaborate easily and efficiently with invoice approvers, vendors, and anyone involved with purchases. This helps you quickly resolve issues and questions, resulting in 5x faster approvals. Contact us to see why users love Stamply and schedule a demo at stamply.com. Thank you for joining us on the Leaders of Modern Finance. My name is Ken Boyd, and I'm a four-time author, including the book Cost Accounting for Dummies. I'm a business writer, a former CPA, and I'm the content marketing manager at Stamply. And joining me today is Rakib Azad, Senior Vice President of Finance at Chainalysis. Rakib, welcome. Thank you for having me. Yeah, we're really excited to have you here, especially given the area that your company works in. Tell us a little about what you do and your background. Sure. I'm SP of Finance, as you mentioned, at Chainalysis. I've been here for nearly two and a half years. We're a software company where we provide compliance and investigation investigative solutions for the crypto and broader Web3 blockchain ecosystem. So we have both public and private sector clients. Our software helps tie real-world entities back to transactional activity on the blockchain. We're about 800 employees. I was employee 150, so a ton of growth in the two and a half years, and we're closing on 900 customers. Wow, that's amazing. That's amazing growth in such a short time. Tell us about your team structure, the size of your team, which sounds like it's really grown, and what group of people report to you? Sure. Well, we raised our Series F in April at an $8.6 billion valuation. So a lot of confidence is put into us by esteemed investors, including GIC. So that was that was great to do in a you know, very tough macro environment. So we are well-funded, well-capitalized to really chase this you know, evolving ecosystem. And for me, my team, it's over 30 people now. We have the core teams of accounting, FPNA, financial ops, which includes procurement, travel, you know, system strategy, and also have the deal desk function under my organization. That's great. And what types of data do you report to your board? What is your board most interested in? So for me, you always need to have the finger on the pulse on the actual PL where we're trending, you know, based on our, our actuals, right? So what my team does is put together the, our PL forecast. For, for the rest of the year, based on uh, how things have gone in the current quarter. So we report on the, the good stuff, you know, the v- revenue uh, cogs OpEx, and then we forecast it out. But then we really dive into our business metrics. For our, you know, that's king when it comes to software world. We break it down on a quarter over quarter look. We look at a year over year growth. You know, we look at the subcomponents, right? But one of the interesting things for us is we are a land and expand business, you know, the classic, you land them and you grow them over time. And so we look at each quarter, how much of our ARR growth is from expansion versus new logo, you know, customers, right? So for us, that gives us the, you know, interesting look on, on how, where our growth is coming from. And then we're also diving into the churn contraction piece. Uh-huh. Uh, we are, we'll have some churn customers any given quarter and we'll have some customers who might need to downsize. So we, we dive into that. You know, analogous to that, there's the you know, NRR, our net revenue retention that we 
uh, take a very close look at because that helps you confirm that are you is your landing expand working well and it, it takes on different flavors between public and private sector so we do dive into the numbers separating the by the by, by the sectors of our our customers so you know if it's if you're on the public side you might we expect a certain growth curve versus the private sector i mean we we, we dive into that in a more deeper manner uh, we obviously will look at the gross new logos, the number of churn customers to get the net new customers, uh, a lot of efficiency metrics. So LTV over CAC, right? Lifetime value over cost acquiring customer. We look at cash payback, how much, how long does it take to pay back uh, for the acquisition of a customer? And then we look at metrics like rule of 40, right? That's one of the classic efficiency metrics that gives us a, an idea of where we are trending. That's one that, you know, uh, seems to be you know, back in vogue with investors. So that's one that I'm taking closer look at these days. Can you define rule of 40? Because that is not a term that has been brought up very often. Yeah. So you you want to look at your, it's essentially your year over year growth. So usually your year over year revenue growth plus your operating margin, right? So if you're growing 80% and you had a negative 40% operating margin, you hit the 40 number, right? And that, that will be roughly the number you want to hit to stay your starting scale efficiently. Uh, the higher the number over 40, the more uh, efficient you are. Uh, uh-huh. So you want, to, you, know, you want to bring that negative 40 to a better number, and then you keep your growth high as possible, and you're showing more efficiencies. And then another one of our common questions is, what does your tech stack look like? Yes. Yeah, so you know, I think we have a lot of uh, tech that I think will hopefully be there with us as we go public one day. NetSuite is our ERP. We just implemented Adaptive Workday. That's our FP&A planning tool. We're about to also release our Workday HRS to the company, and that will tie, you know, tie back in with Adaptive to hopefully give us really robust headcamp forecasting and, and tracking in the near future. We recently implemented Coupa for our procure-to-pay tool. And then Flowcast, we use that for our month-end closing activities. And then Salesforce, while it's, it's, you know, it's a revenue owned by the revenue org, it's a, you know, a big tool for us to plug back into NetSuite. One of the tools that we use to help interconnect between our software is Workado, right? So we have a Workado instance that connects NetSuite to Salesforce, where we get sales orders through to NetSuite. And we also have Tessario as our AR tool right now. So that helps us with the, with the kinds of receivables and keeping track of what's what's out there standing for us. Are you at a point where you have an audit performed? Yeah, we, we're in the midst of a ENY audit right now. As we, as oh, we okay. Uh, we're about to wrap that up. Fingers crossed that we're getting the report in, in the coming weeks. So it was a, it was an intensive process as one that we asked them to you know, go hard on us to make sure we're you know, unturning every stone here. And so for us, it was a, it was a very very rigorous and, and 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 long night sometimes for the team to really go through this, but I think we're coming out of this stronger th- than before, right? And we got to do some really deep deep dives in our rev rec you know policies. We did deep dives on commission uh, uh, amortization schedules, and are we doing that correctly? And we're you know there was some you know really low thresholds on some of the things that we booked, you know, like looking into our payroll and things like that. So it, it really. I think made us a, a stronger team as a result. That's interesting. Are you a six thirty year end? We are a, a one hundred thirty one year end. So it's a, so this one where we we kicked off the we kept the, kicked off the audit around March or so, right? And then okay, and wrapping, yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. So it's one where we, we, we like the goal is by next year we'll have you know we'll have a more compressed time period. This sure. is really the the you know the first go with E and Y to really 
dig under the hood and going forward, we should be in a much better shape to get this thing knocked out quicker. Oh, that's great. Yeah. That first time through on an audit, I was, I was an auditor in another live with KPMG many years ago. And that, that first time through is really tough for the company for accounting and finance. Exactly. I mean, we, we went with, through one before that was not before. So it's, it's, it's definitely not a class before, yeah. update here. Right. And it's one where is, is it, I think it was really good for us to go through it. Uh-huh. Yeah. And that revenue recognition, you know, those rules are, I had to do a continuing ad on, I created a continuing ed course on that a while ago. And that's can be really challenging. No, really definitely. Challenging. And in the first that we're, we're adding new products any given year and we have to take a look at, you know, the treatment there. And sometimes, you know, they might have a little bit of a different nuance and how, mm-hmm. how we go to market on it. And, and they might have a, you know, a, a different treatment on how we, recognize the revenue, right? So that's something we want to make sure we have a a rigorous process for. That's great. I'll shift gears a little bit and talk about you personally. What were some key moments from your career journey that helped you prepare for where you are now? Sure. When I started my career, so that's, it's ranging about 20 years now. I started off in the consumer products and retail world, particularly in larger companies. For example, Foot Locker is one of the, the companies I worked at. And you know, one of the things I didn't like was like it was too big, probably for my taste, which is why I did this transition towards the startup and tech, the tech world. But that being said, the roles I played, I was embedded in the business, and I really developed my love for the operational side of a business because I was asked to you know forecast out our PLs, but I was also asked to find efficiencies and cost cutting yeah. measures. Right, that, that's all retail is about. So I would be embedded in. Like with with the guy who was in charge of the light fixtures at the, our stores, right? I'm like going over the, the numbers with him, and I was, you know, I'm I'm talking to merchandisers about how Nike did first, you know, in this store versus this store. So that got me really excited that the of the pieces that got it into the PNL. And then the other part of that business is at the end of the month, like you know, there's erroneous entries, and I'm I actually have to write out long, you know, just pages of the journal reclasses. So that gave right. me like a rigor in accounting and accrual and really understand the accrual process that gave, has actually grounded me through the rest of my career. It gave me like a, you know, because I wasn't an accountant by training. I was more of a pure finance guy. So right. I was like doing, you know, journal entries, talking to our short, shared services center. So th- those types of jobs, I have several of those in the early part of my year that really, I think, gave me a baseline, you know, experience that helped me out even to this day, right? And then as I, you know, made that transition over to, Tech, I you know I I took a couple of gamble. I made a gamble where I took on some consulting roles. Like I was like I want to make yeah you know, I want to make this transition from the New York area. I saw that New York was burgeoning in the tech world around 10, 11 years ago, and I left the full time kind of comfort level and went in and started consulting. And I consulted at one company I consulted with was Live Person, which is a B two B software company. It's a public company, and I started under, understanding the lingo behind SaaS software and uh, understanding how software businesses run. And that's been a pivotal moment for me because that's uh, was a springboard into my role in BangoDB, where I joined them early 2016. And that MongoDB experience became transformative for me because I joined them two years ahead of their IPO, building up their FP&A team, and then go, you know, being going through that IPO process, going through the rigors of becoming a public company while in hyper growth led me to this chainalysis role. So it, it's one where I've stacked, you know, the, the initial experiences, you know, it was the bit of solid foundation I've been stacking on top of that, making a couple of a risk along the way, but I just, you know, it's, it's, it, it kind of came together and I'm just, you know, couldn't be more thrilled of how things have gone out, gone for me in my career in the last 
five, six years, but uh, that, yeah, it's some, some pivotal moments there. Yeah. I know some other people who have done, gone through an IPO during high growth. I don't know how they did it. I don't know how you keep all the balls in the air. You know, as a friend of mine said, you know, I, I run the business up until this point in the day, and then I have to work on the transaction between this time and this time. And it was run the business, work on the transaction. He was actually the controller of a company that public was sold to GE. Yes. And boy, I, you had to just learn a ton because you basically have two jobs going on at once. It was, it was definitely two jobs. There's some late nights for sure, because we, you know, we're, yeah, to your point, we're running a business. It was a high growth business that needed its TLC for with the stakeholders and helping them right. you know, through their investments while we're building Wall Street models and 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 how, how does that you know how does that look? And it, be, it becomes this nice inter interchanger because your the operational model is going to inform how you're going to present to the street, right? And, and to the to right. the analysts, you you have analyst day things like that, right? So it was fascinating to see that unfold. But yeah, you, that's something you just have to be ready to do a lot of work. And but it's very rewarding when you get across the finish line, right? And it's it's, it's something that's yeah. If if anyone wants to do it, wants to put the work in, you know, I think it's definitely worthwhile experience. Yeah. Oh, that's yeah, tremendous learning experience. I'm going to ask you before my next question. I'm going to. I think I know a definition, but I'm going to ask you anyway. Could you give us a definition of Web three? I mean, I've heard a definition several times, but I'm interested if you have a maybe a clearer one. Yeah, Web three. I'll be honest. I'm probably not any better than you on a, a definitive uh, definition here. It's it's one that it's going to involve blockchain technology is why, you know, it's important for chain analysis. There's, there's evolution and you could argue you know, how the world's going to unfold, but in a nutshell, blockchain technology is going to enable applications that were not enabled before, right? So a lot of it's going to be, you have the concept of a smart contract, right? So you're building right. contracts using blockchain technology. So part of this Web3 movement is you're going to potentially be able to offer services without a big middleman, right? And maybe the, the way things evolve, maybe the, the big guys will get involved in this world. But in, in theory, the way, my, the way I look at it is Web3, blockchain technology will enable a lot more decentralized uh, workflows right. and will open up you know, goods and services around the world maybe that may not have been available to certain populations. Right, so that's what you know. What a lot that's an ethos that, that's carried by our founders of why they've even created chain analysis. They believe if we could open up the world to crypto and blockchain technology, we could open up payment rails to to underprivileged you know, populations who don't have access to you know to the to big guys when it comes to financial services or insurance things like that. So, like for me, Web three is a little bit of like, it, it's you know it, it, it's forming, but there's some some interesting things that that will you know, underpin it when it's it's going to be smart contracts at, at its heart, right? That's blockchain technology driven. That's that's how I boil it down. But it, things will pop up like gaming, new types of gaming, and yeah. things you talk about the metaverse, right? So there'll be, you know, there could be applications and that are being set off in this metaverse, right? There's different things that could encompass Web3, but the, the tech at its core is blockchain derived, which is where we, you know, we potentially come in to help serve that world. And I heard, I was thinking of it selfishly as an author, I also heard it defined, are you familiar with a guy named Chris Dixon, who's an Andreessen Horowitz? Yes. Okay. So I heard him, I listened to Tim Ferriss podcast religiously. I listened to his interview about Web3 four times, probably. And he also decide, described it as a way of getting that, you can get private property on the internet essentially because of the blockchain 
creating security, which for somebody like me, who's a, somewhat of a creative being an author, or if you're a musician or whatever, you can basically create and control your own content asset on the web, yes. which up until now has not been possible, which is related to what you talked about, I think. But that Chris Dixon interview helped me a lot because I didn't I know. know. I, I think that's, that's, yeah, he's hitting on that, right? And when it comes to security, that's where, you know, chain analysis plays the role, right? Because we know, uh, we tie back real world entities uh, to on-chain activity. That's our, our core right. skill set and we do it better than anyone else. So imagine a world where more, you know, you know the assets go on, you know, encoded into, into blockchain and you want to make sure it's secured, you will want to run chain analysis because we could run, we could actually identify risk to your platform if a nefarious actor might be trying to, you know, interact on your platform, right? For example. So, so for us, the, this is where, you know, we, we believe this is the world that's unfolding and we could help, you know, if you're going to launch a business, you know, a business or a venture in this world, right. uh, be the, the company that provides that, that, you know, the compliance and investigative and security products, right? That could help you out. Yeah. And that ties it in perfectly. So now I'm going to ask the question, what are, what new chat? I think you've answered some of it. What new challenges to Web3 and crypto do Web3 and crypto present for financial leaders regarding analysis and forecasting? Yeah, so it's a it's a you know, it's a different animal, right, than the forecasting I've done in the past, right? So, for example, at MongoDB, it's a very established database market that we're chasing. We knew the TAM, we forecasted against it. It was a very sales capacity model driven, you know, forecasting exercise because we believe that we had a blue ocean out there to chase, and you you just got to you know manager sales folks around the world. Mm -hmm. There's an element to that, right? In, you know, when I forecast for, for chain analysis, but it's, this is an evolving TAM that's rapidly innovating, right? So we need to be ready to fine tune our products to meet the needs of, of these newer applications that come out, right? So we, you know, we're, we're serving our public sector customers really well. They have a very, you know, a baseline product there. Reactor that is worked really well. We have a compliance product that works really well, but what are some of the, you know, the tweaks we, we need to make in our product set based on the innovation that's coming and how do we then start accounting for it in our forecast? So that's where it's, you know, it's some of it, there's a little bit of an art to it, right? So for me, when I created the forecast for this year, some, it actually assumes some growth in DeFi and NFTs, where uh -huh. last year when we were doing the planning, it was still an emerging technology, right? right. So we had to make a a guesstimate based on our best, you know, trend analysis of how many logos can we land in the in this newer kind of space, right? And we so then we've gotten some customers this year that we've not would have not even planned for last year, right? Because of uh, updated business models. There's been some consumer brands who are launching digital marketplaces, right? That are that are now customers that we would never would have expected to be customers. Uh, so that's that is a you know that is a revenue forecast challenge for us. But for me, then the other side of resource allocation, it, that's another interesting you know, uh, thought process, right? Because we have a lot of go-to-market resources we're deploying, but cryptos and blockchain technology in general are being adopted at different pace in different countries. So we're, you know, we're, we're starting these conversations around the world. And then like, when do we land that boots on the ground versus like right. trying to sell from, from an office right somewhere else? Right. So that 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 is a, a big challenge, right? Talking through with the you know the revenue organization and really like when do we when's the right time to bring in resources? Then from the RD perspective, our you know, that's still classic core products versus new products, how much do you allocate? 
uh, and then taking those bets. And so I think in, in this situation, the bets are have a little bit more risk to them because we are all we're trying to project the needs of very new entrants into this space in a world where compliance hasn't regulation hasn't quite come down yet from authorities. So we're basically the de facto regulator in some ways. Interesting. Another question, as someone with both a finance and business understanding, what are some misconceptions those who are strictly in the business world might have about Web3? Yeah, there's some of the more classic things around crypto, right? Because, you know, we, as I alluded to earlier, we truly believe that cryptocurrencies could open up payment rails and open up financial services. And that's part of, you know, our our view of this world. And, but, you know, the, one of the persistent myths are crypto is anonymous and untraceable, right? right. But in reality, crypto, you know, operates on public immutable ledgers, right? Blockchains. That's so Bitcoin would be on a public blockchain. And anyone could just look up these transactions, right? And be able to take a look at it. And it's, it's open for anyone out there. So in reality, crypto is a more transparent form of value transfer, right? In, in, in our opinion, the only thing is it's difficult to see what services are behind these transactions, right? So that's why they're pseudonymous. And for us, it's, this is where Chainalysis comes in, right? We are the blockchain data platform that is mapping cryptocurrency addresses to the real world services. And we help bridge that gap there so for us like you know there's you know list you know listed hacks uh, get a lot of the press when it comes to crypto this you know there's fiat money laundering happening (laughs) to this day right it's been around for you know uh, forever so so our take is crypto is safer right than your your, your other forms of payment rails right and 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 so for us this is where you know, I think it's, it's a myth that we are helping actually break down every day. Right. In listening to that podcast that I mentioned several times, I really had a lot of misconceptions about what it was. So that helped me. I was interested, I'm looking at some other notes I have here. I have a consultant friend of mine who helps companies with the key and contracting process for public sector companies. And I was interested to know, are public sector companies set up so they're used to the quick response and quick you know, interaction with you guys, because I would think in a big bureaucracy like the federal government, that might be challenging. It's definitely challenging. I know there's a lot, lot of procurement processes set up right at these at these customers. But you know, one of the things that happened is uh, you know, our founders, my, Michael uh, and Jonathan, created relationships with the public sector in the early days, which is the okay. reason back in 2014, 2015. Which is the reason I think where chain analysis is where it is today versus its competitors. We have a dominant position because they developed these these partnerships and really understanding what they required to help investigate you know illicit activity on the blockchain, and that has helped grease the wheels for the early early days in terms okay. of deals that happened. And yes, we are seeing you know you always see some of the you know the slow moving contractual processes happening. That, you know uh, when I see renewals come up, sometimes you might miss the date, right? But that that is part of you know just doing business with the public sector, but we do have these deep relationships with you know, both investigative agencies, intelligence bodies, regulators, tax agencies that helps out, right? We have champions at these at these institutions that might help grease the wheels a little bit, right? We'll still go through the procurement process and have to go potentially do our fees and all that good stuff. But there's been instances in in the past where very specific budgets were pulled to avert the RFP because we didn't have a true competitor who could even bid on it, right? Uh, it was oh, a very I unique, thought of that. 
Yeah. And so there's, and so we've had that happen in the past. Yeah. So that's, that's something that you know, I think we're mission critical you know, tool for many of these agencies and, and they, you know, they, they figure out a way to get it done. Right. Sometimes it's going to be pulling budgets from, from uh, outside their normal budget if it right. uh, is needed, but otherwise, you know, as I said, we'll, we'll go, you know, we're building the expertise to make sure we, we, get these uh, contracts done uh, in a reasonable time period, right? When it comes to going through these processes. Yeah. I mean, one thing I thought of before I got online with you was, you know, in this new legislation that's being passed, they're going to substantially increase the number of IRS audits and agents. Mm-hmm. Yep. And I would imagine if you do business with the IRS, they are, they're going to have a huge growing need for what you do, particularly if they're performing more audits and gathering more sensitive information. Exactly. I mean, the budget. Yeah, yeah, that should mean potentially more business for us. They right now, like they use us for you know criminal investigations primarily, but we are looking at more tax use cases as well, right? So for us, that yeah, that's that's good that they're getting the budget right because I think that they're going to need it to as you know as more crypto use proliferates. You know, there's they're going to have to beef up their, their teams there on that end. Right. Well, this has been great. And our our last question that we always ask our guests: if you had to give one piece of advice to modern finance leaders, what would it be? This is something where, you know, finance has this, you know, kind of perception that we're the, the rigid guys who look at the numbers and <laughs> run it, right. right? And that's, and so for me, I'm like giving the opposite advice. Like I think finance teams and should be flexible and proactive in anything they do. I don't care which group you're in. Uh, and so for me, I, I preach this constantly to my team is like, you should never just be a receiver of metrics and then just report and just like, and just like hand it over and like, Hey, and give and this, hey, sales guy, figure this out. <laughs> like we have to be in the forefront before even numbers are produced to make suggestions. Don't be afraid to be a, a collaborative partner. And it could be, you could be in the accounting team just having to be talking to the RevOps person and just have those conversations because we could actually positively influence our, our metrics if we if we're we're right there in the front lines with our stakeholders. So that's something I a mantra that I carry that I've seen, you know, it's born fruit, right? I've it's I've taken pride where uh, there's a few things I've done. That literally has like driven revenue because I, I looked at some some gap revenue recognition rules and I optimized right. on them right and I worked right. with, sure. with the team to do it right and it um, and then unleashes revenue and it helped us uh, you know in my last role right so so for me that's like just please like don't think like you can't help influence these numbers and then the, then it becomes that flexible side of things right like when you have a challenge you shouldn't have a default hey a system's gonna fix this. Headcount is going to fix this. Our, pro- our process is going to fix this. It could be a mix of all three. It could be one of three, but you have to really look at it, you know, at an issue and, and diagnose it and then come up with the, the best solution. So be very flexible because you, you'd be surprised that you know, some fixes might be easier than what you expect. And, but like, you got to take the due care to, to, to really uh, understand the, the challenge at hand and, and, and then go about it. Right. So for me, like I always kind of look at that, you know, so the people system processes, and like, because those are the three that will help you solve uh-huh. any issue, right? And you got to you got to optimize on the out of those three variables, and just be flexible in how you solve each of your your big challenge as they come. That's great advice. Well, Keem, we thank you so much for being on the show. This has been really helpful, particularly from a crypto angle. And I do want to also recommend to everyone there is a fast company article, I believe, yes, on your firm that is fantastic that I read before we got online. So I just want to thank you very much for being here today and giving us your time. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Leaders of Modern Finance podcast. 
If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a five-star review. You can see the show notes and all the resources mentioned in today's episode at stamply.com slash leaders of modern finance. Thank you for listening and be sure to subscribe for updates on future episodes. This episode is brought to you by Stamply, the most powerful way to process and pay invoices. Stamply is the only accounts payable automation software that centers communication on top of the invoice so that accounts payable collaborates better with approvers, vendors, and anyone involved in purchases to quickly resolve issues and questions, resulting in 5x faster approvals. Contact us to see why users love Stamply and schedule a demo at stamply.com.